Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's, whether you're joining us online uh, from your dock or your deck, or we've got the pleasure of having you with us uh, this morning in person. We're so glad to see you. Like many, I have been spellbound by the images that NASA's James Webb Telescope is beaming back to Earth, an image of what the universe was like 13 billion years ago. It's simply extraordinary. And yet, we're stepping into another recession. Bombs still rain down on Kyiv. Marriages fray and rivalries and resentments fester at work. We can split an atom. We can peer into the deepest recesses of the human body to find a renegade cancer cell. And yet our children are so overprogrammed that their souls are gasping for breath. We risk becoming a society of intellectual giants and yet moral pygmies. We're continuing in our summer series unpacking the Apostles' Creed, the most ancient summary of what Christians around the world have agreed on for the past uh, 2,000 years. And we're seeing how those ancient words can shape our lives uh, in both challenging ways but also life-giving ways. Last week, uh, we looked at how the virgin birth is the ultimate oxymoron, perfectly setting the stage for an upside-down world shaped by God's initiative, by God's grace, where we don't get what we deserve, where enemies get loved and the first shall be last. And if you thought the virgin birth was crazy, this week, we, this week we've got more of the same. Because what have we got? A crucified Messiah, a dead God. It makes no sense. God, by definition, is eternal, the source of all life. And our line uh, today from the Apostles' Creed is this. Jesus, who we saw as the fullness of God uh, a few weeks ago, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he died, and he was buried. I mean, this is actually really crazy stuff. And one of the accusations against Jesus during his earthly ministry, alongside my personal fave that he had too much fun at parties, uh, one of the accusations was that Jesus was a fool, an idiot, really. In fact, the Greek word used in our reading today from 1 Corinthians to describe the foolish message that Jesus brought is moros, where we get the word moronic from. The accusation from Jesus' enemies then, and many still today, is that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is foolishness. It's idiotic. It's moronic. The kind of crazy that you would expect from a God who gets killed and dies. I mean, it's kind of careless. And in many ways, the Apostles' Creed just sums up the crazy right in plain sight for all to see, for seekers to explore and for believers to marvel at. You see, one of the many dangers of starting to come to Christian community regularly, of exploring what it means to follow Jesus, is that it all begins to make sense. It begins to make sense that a man who lived 2,000 years ago in some incredible way is the fullness of God. It begins to make sense that his awful death could be utterly transformative for our day-to-day -day lives. It, 
And if you start getting to know other thoughtful people who uh, consider themselves uh, followers of Jesus, if you listen to enough half-decent sermons, you, you start praying the prayers, maybe you're moved by the music, if you do that long enough, you start thinking to yourself, you know, this stuff, it really makes sense. Maybe I'll get baptized. Maybe I'll even give my money to this movement. And we forget. We forget how foolish the gospel is. And what I want to do this morning is a, is a quick compare and contrast using our 1 Corinthians passage. What's the wisdom, just in broad brushstrokes, but what's the wisdom that the world offers? And how does that line up against the foolishness that Jesus brings? And, and hopefully we don't do it in, in an overly simplistic way where voila, Jesus is just the best but where we can see what this would actually look like on the ground. So quick compare and contrast. Let's start uh, with those broad brushstrokes of the wisdom th that the world offers, which cannot be all bad, because those pictures from the James Webb telescope, which humans made possible, they're beautiful. Our reading this morning is taken from one of the writings of the most influential of early Christian leaders, St. Paul. And he says this in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What is this human strength? What's this human wisdom? Two broad brushstrokes. One, domination. Two, ungrace. Domination. Paul was a Jew uh, living 2,000 years ago under Roman occupation. And the Roman Empire still stands as the most successful empire of all of history, ruthlessly controlling its people uh, through violence and taxes. Political and economic and military domination of other peoples are painful threads that run through all systems of government. There is no golden era. There is no Atlantis. Our own deeply scarred relationship with Indigenous Canadians is, is but the most recent example. Gender domination continues to exist, with women leaders being challenged and disparaged in ways that men do not experience. My own personal lifestyle has been built on the domination and exploitation of creation, of nature. Systems of domination are so prevalent that they're the elevator music we no longer hear. And even pointing them out on a Sunday morning can seem odd. We've gone so far down the track. Our imagination, mine included, is so stunted that any other way of living just seems impractical, dare I say, foolish. Broad brushstroke number two, ungrace. What is ungrace? Well, this definition of grace may help us. Justice, justice is getting what you deserve. We love justice as long as it's for other people, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's a little better. Grace is different. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Our world runs on ungrace, some version of justice or some version of, of mercy, right? Like our financial institutions, our schools, they function on ungrace. They have to. Grocery stores, airlines, 
which probably aren't good examples of anything right now. Uh, pension funds, uh, law firms, public transit, none of them can function on un none of them can function on grace, on giving people what they don't deserve. Our, our society would collapse. Relationship breakdown, tribal rivalries, bankruptcy courts, the military-industrial complex across the globe, all fueled by ungrace. It's a powerful and potent force. It works in our homes, it works in our minds and our neighborhoods. All of us, in different ways, have this as the internal operating system of our lives, ungrace. When we use our time and finances to shore up our appearance and our achievement for ourselves, for our children. And when that becomes more important than serving the common good and other people's children, we're operating by the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world, the foolishness of God. Verses 22 and 23. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Forrest Gump famously said, I may not be a smart man, Jenny, but I know what love is. The foolishness of the gospel, this, this love, is nowhere seen more clearly than in the death of Jesus on the cross. A crucified Messiah, a suffering savior, it's an oxymoron. And it's noteworthy that the Apostles' Creed takes care to parse this out. Number one, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Number two, he was crucified. Number three, he died. And number four, he was buried. Pilate was the, the Roman governor who condemned Jesus to death. And he's the only other historical person with the Virgin Mary who gets named in the creed. And he roots this event in recorded history. Archbishop Rowan Williams puts this out about Pilate and Mary both being in the creed. Mary, the one who says yes to Jesus, and Pilate, the one who says no. Pilate went for the wisdom of the world, domination. He was fearful that if he didn't condemn Jesus to death, there would be an outcry from the religious ruling classes that would look bad for him back at HQ in Rome. And so Jesus suffered. He died a humiliating death, and he was buried in an unmarked tomb. Now, I want you to imagine that you receive an invitation uh, to speak to the great and good of our global city, right? Maybe it's the Toronto Club or the AGO or between innings at a Jays game. You know, the intellectuals, the civic leaders, the sports stars, the scions of art and culture. And I want you to imagine the invitation asks you to speak about goodness, beauty, meaning of life. And all you have at your disposal for this talk is the following. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he died, and was buried. No other material to work with than the account of a humiliating, bloody execution on a garbage dump outside the walls of some remote city in the Middle East. Imagine it being your task to argue that this historical event is not only the turning point of all of human history, but it's actually the key to every single problem that you and I have in our lives. The source of all true wisdom, the only way to parent your children with hope and confidence, to invest your money in meaningful ways, in things that really matter, 
and to have a lasting impact on the systems of cruelty in our city and our culture. Well, yes, that is what we're claiming. The foolishness of the cross is the source of true wisdom. Dr. Zeus said that he liked nonsense because it wakes up the brain cells. You see, without the nonsense of a crucified Messiah, the message of love and forgiveness that Jesus brings, friends, it just becomes sentimentality. You know that feeling of love, but like no action, a Hallmark card? Because in the real lives that you and I live in Toronto, not the glossy Instagram version, but the real ones, right? In the energy and vitality of a life like New York, or the despair and death of life in Kyiv. Love requires more than sentimentality. Real love requires getting in the trenches with other people, even trading places. Here's an example. Our three daughters are growing up. Our oldest is actually living in New York for the summer. Emma came into the world in a state of total dependence. And Tim and I had to give up our freedom and independence for many years. But if you don't allow your children to impinge on your own happiness and comfort, and if you'll only care for them when it doesn't inconvenience you, then sure, they'll grow up physically, but in so many other ways, your kids are going to be damaged, they're going to be stunted. To love your children, you must sacrifice, suffer even. It's either them or it's you. Or you've got an alcoholic in the family. It is not possible to love them and not suffer yourself. Even uh, parts of you or what you thought your family life might look like in the future, it's going to have to die. The alcoholic may feel supported and, and grateful for all that you do for them. That's wonderful. But it comes at a cost. Either you suffer in sacrifice or they do. All love that actually changes people's lives on the ground, it requires sacrificial exchange. Someone needs to suffer and sacrifice if someone else is going to flourish. And the Apostles' Creed reminds us that Christians worship a God who becomes human and offers his own life in order for love to be demonstrated. For God to be a God of real love, the cross, unavoidable. He had to suffer. He had to be crucified. He had to die. He had to be buried to demonstrate that he was really dead. It's no sleight of hand, no conjurer's trick. The foolishness of the cross overturns the domination and ungrace of the world. Instead of dominating, Jesus serves. He humbles himself, leaving aside all his power and his majesty and his glory. And instead of dishing out uh, ungrace, you know, Jesus could have given us justice, what we deserve. Don't want that. He might have given us mercy. That would have been a bit better. Not giving us what we deserve, but he doesn't do that. Instead of either of those forms of ungrace, Jesus gives us grace. He lavishes it on us. What we don't deserve forgiveness, hope, purpose, and the gift of eternal life, where there's no pain and suffering, only lasting contentment. The foolishness of the cross is the source of all wisdom. 
as we end, quick compare and contrast about how this lands on the ground. Let's take our relationships, because we all have them. Normally, we relate to people, maybe they're our friends, as long as it doesn't cost us too much, right? Like too much time, too much emotional energy. Or we relate to them for what we will get out of the relationship, right? Status or money or, or power or love or companionship. We either use people or let them use us. We either dominate or we are dominated. And most of the time, not always, we give people what we think they deserve, roughly. But the foolishness of the cross can strengthen us instead to sacrifice and yet still commit in our relationships. We no longer need to relate emotionally or sexually to convince ourselves that we're lovable because we know that God loved us to hell and back. We can now have the courage to love another adult enough to confront them about destructive behavior and yet still stay in relationship with them. It's hard to do. Or to lovingly discipline a child when it's inconvenient, painful, and does not benefit us. Taking away the iPad, that's like a nightmare discipline, right? The foolishness of the cross is the source of all true wisdom. The novelist E.M. Forrester wrote this, nonsense and beauty have close connections. The James Webb Telescope has given us a glimpse of the ethereal beauty of the universe God has given us. And the Apostle Creed tells of a suffering savior, a crucified God, a foolish man, and he died a foolish death so we could live with wisdom. Here at St. Paul's, we are part of an international network of fools, of people who've decided to trust themselves and their futures to the wisdom of a foolish God of grace. And regardless of where you are today on your journey of faith, come and eat, come and drink, come and be merry with the great family of fools. Thanks be to God. Amen.